Good morning, how are you? Are you frozen? Yeah, I'm telling you. I got up this morning at 5.30, read for about an hour uh, on, on uh, stuff for a Revelation uh, class tonight, and it was 21 degrees. At uh, 7 o'clock, uh, when I was eating my bowl of cereal, it was 20. That, that's just wrong, isn't it? Isn't it when, like, when the sun comes up, it's supposed to heat up? This place is just blows my mind. So don't you love it? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. We'll pray about your attitude. Uh, may God help you. Uh, we're in Psalms. Uh, we are studying uh, chapter 81 today, if you'd like to turn there, Psalm 81. Uh, great psalm about worship. Psalm chapter 81, and I'll project it if uh, you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Uh, and if you're online, we welcome you uh, to worship today. Uh, and if it is your first Sunday here, uh, we have a welcome uh, counter out there when you first come in to your right. Uh, a lot of our uh, ladies would love to introduce you to the church, give you some materials. I think you even get a free gift of sorts. Uh, I don't know what it is now, but um, it's not a free car or anything like that, but it's, it's something. Anyway, they just like to introduce you to the church, so make sure you stop by and say hi. Let's go to God in prayer as we look at the scriptures. Uh, Father, May the next uh, few moments uh, be profitable for our lives as we seek to mature uh, in our walk with you, we who know you. And for those who don't know you, uh, who are searching for you and are being drawn by you uh, to, to be here today, might you use the scriptures to show them uh, their need of the Savior Christ in their lives. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, how important is it for you to be worshiping God in a corporate setting. Uh, Jesus answers this particular question in Luke 19 on his triumphal entry. Uh, and here's what we read uh, from Dr. Luke. He says, as soon as he, Jesus, was approaching, speaking of the Temple Mount, uh, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully, no kidding, with a loud voice. Why? Well, they had seen all the miracles which he had done. And so they, they, they knew he was the Messiah in the flesh. So they were shouting. Uh, they weren't just mumbling. They were shouting, quoting from the Old Testament, blessed is the king, he's the Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are excited. Uh, you should be excited when you come to worship. Did you know this? Oh no, another day. No, you should be coming to be excited. They were excited. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, watched all this happening, and it was just way too much for their, uh, their mindset uh, because they didn't like Jesus. And so what did they tell the disciples to do? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Isn't that interesting? It came from the religious leaders. The very man who should have worshiped Christ rejected him because he blew away everything they, they wanted the Messiah to be. Uh, he was not their version of Messiah, so they rejected him. But Jesus answered and said to them, I'm not going to rebuke him. I will tell you, he says, if these, my disciples, become silent, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm adding to the text, by the way. What he says is going to happen. If they don't worship me, see all those rocks around your feet? And if there is an old rabbinical saying which says uh, when God, God created the, the earth that he uh, gave two angels rocks. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was three bags apiece to, to sprinkle around the earth to make the earth. And when the angels came back and reported to God uh, how they did in dropping the rocks on the planet, one of them said, uh, Lord, I'm sorry, but I dropped two of my rocks right over Jerusalem. All his rocks were there. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you can understand the import of that. That's actually humorous. You don't get it as a Westerner. But... <laughs> It means all the rocks are there. They're everywhere. So when it says, when Jesus says, all these rocks will praise me, they're all over the place in Israel. You, the, everything there is built around Jerusalem stone because there's so many rocks everywhere. He said the rocks would praise me. A rock is an inanimate object. You know this, right? 
You're not out in your yard talking to your rocks, right? Are you? And we'll pray for you. Jesus said, worship is so important that if you don't worship me as the Messiah, then the rocks would start worshiping me. Isn't that amazing? How important for you is it for you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, to worship God? That important. That when you realize who he is, you just want to be in church. So coming to church today, you should have been totally excited coming there. No one should have drugged you there. Why? Because I know who Jesus is, and I want to go worship him corporately. But if I don't do it, the rocks in my yard will start doing it. That's what Jesus says. And so um, it's important for you to be in worship. So, but what about private worship? Uh, private worship is important. Uh, you have public worship and you have private worship. So when I got up this morning, uh, I'm going to be in church all day. I'm going to teach an hour class on Revelation tonight. Uh, so it's like doing five sermons in a Sunday. It's a busy Sunday, but I still got up this morning at 530 and read for about an hour, hour and a half. What am I doing? Well, that's for me. And that's for me and God. I need that. I can, this is not an academic thing to me. This is about God. And so it's, it's, it's that private worship. So you have to have a balance between the two, public worship and private worship. Now, I know COVID has messed up everything, hasn't it? You're probably wearing like five masks right now. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Two's good, five's better. Maybe next year, 15 masks. You know, you won't have to do social distancing because there's so many masks in front of you. You're just, I'm just saying. But anyway, back to my sermon. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, COVID messed up everything, didn't it? Because it's like back in the day when we had to cancel church, I came back from Israel and last February, we were actually in Israel a year ago today. We got back and COVID hit and they shut down, literally the week after we got back, they shut down everything, couldn't preach alive anymore, had to preach to an empty sanctuary with the lights off, it was black. It was tough. And then you're on the other end watching this, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't simple, we did that for months. But then we finally got back to corporate worship. But praise God, we did. The other venue was not, is not how it's supposed to be. And so I was glad. So we are a church that has worked hard at keeping the doors open during COVID, right? I had a lady stop me last week and she told me, you know, I'm new. I, I, and I said, well, why are you here? I'm here because your doors are open. You're open. You're worshiping. And so, you know, so we've been the kind of church, social distancing, all that stuff. But worship is, is commanded by God, corporate worship. Uh, now, you might be at home because you have uh, elderly, elderly parents that live with you and you don't want to be with people and contract COVID and bring it home. And, or you might have a compromised uh, uh, immunization issues with your, you know, whatever. I, I, I get all the reasons why people aren't in corporate worship all the time or uh, like they used to be. And God knows your heart. But, but the bottom line is we're supposed to maintain the balance between private and public worship. So, so basically, how's your balance going on? Uh, you got balance? You got balance? When you look at this psalm, Psalm 81, it talks about uh, uh, worship and what worship is all about. It's a great psalm. And it's a very interesting psalm because he's going to talk about it's your mandate. Worship is your mandate. It's not a suggestion. It's your mandate. Uh, and, and that mandate is also followed by the Savior's message when you go to corporate worship. So in corporate worship, two things happen. You just had 30 minutes of great worship by our, our wonderful worship team. They, they do an awesome job. They lead you in the worship of the living God. That's what they do. They're not here for, to, for them to perform and you just sit there with the scorecard going, I don't know, on a scale of one to 10, I'm giving that a two. Or that person's a half note off. Or that, that's not why they're, you, okay? You, you're here to get involved with worship. They're to guide you in worship. They do a great job. But also the other half of the worship, the other 30 minutes or more, <laughs> just saying, is the, is the word side. So you get worship, you giving God worship. And the other side is God giving you a word. This psalm is structured this way. He's, the psalmist, uh, Asaph, the worship leader, is going to tell you, 
Let me tell you about what worship's all about. He's going to lay it out uh, in like verses one to four. He's going to tell you what worship is about. And he's going to flip. And he's going to say, there was a worship service I was involved in where God gave me a word of teaching. And then I taught that to the people. That's going to be the rest of the passage. It's going to go in those two ways. So I'm going to put the cookies on the lower shelf because I know it's early in the morning. It's kind of hard to get going, isn't it? Or you're all military. You've been up since three jogging or something. But when you, when you, when you look at this passage, it's what does God want from me? He wants me to worship him. It, me giving him worship. Corporate is better because uh, he commands us to do this with other saints. Uh, and, and then uh, I'm supposed to get a word. Well, God, what's the word for me? When you leave this place, you should know you should know when you walk out of here what you're supposed to do. If you leave on any given Sunday and wonder, what in the world was that guy talking about? I didn't do my job. Because you got to get a word, as I get a word during the week, it's like, God, what do you want me to do? So what is worship all about? Well, first of all, we need to, before we study this passage, we need to look at the historical setting of the passage. When did it take place? Because that will help you understand what he's going to talk about. And so I would submit to you that since this particular passage talks about a ram's horn, see the horn? a ram's horn, uh, and it's talking about a new moon, you have two possibilities of what he's talking about uh, as far as worship here. This is a, a time of special worship. So you have two options since the new moon and the shofar horn is mentioned here in verse three. Uh, you have feast of trumpets or feast of uh, tabernacles, one of the two. I don't think it's the feast of trumpets that he's talking about here. I think it's the feast of tabernacles that he's talking about in these 16 verses for the following three reasons. Number one, uh, the word trumpet, shofar, uh, it, the ram's horn is used in verse three. That was used in the trumpets, feast, religious ritual or, of worship or feast of tabernacles where Israel had tabernacles. They built structures to live in, to remember as they were uh, nomads in the wilderness for 40 years, they remember the Exodus. And so they did this every year. They would build those tabernacles. And one of the things they did during that time was they'd blow the shofar horn at the new moon for tabernacles or trumpets. But I think it's tabernacles in view here, which means tabernacles is about, are you going to be obedient to God as you wander through the earthly pilgrimage, your wilderness, or are you going to be disobedient? Because that's going to be the import of the passage. Worship God, worship him in the following manner, as he's going to say in the first four verses, and then let's flip and study the word is, you're on a pilgrimage. You obedient? You obedient? So my second point is this, uh, the, the phrase sing aloud in, in uh, verse two, where he says that particular Hebrew command, uh, I researched that grammatically and it only occurs in that Hebrew form uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. It only occurs one other time in the Old Testament. This is not by accident. It's divinely inspired and God says, there's no accident why that, that, all, that command appears in Deuteronomy 32. In, in, in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses wrote an entire, it's a song. The whole chapter is a song Moses wrote in his old age to the nation. Isn't that sweet? And what's he tell him in that song? You should go back and read it with your small group or your family. Uh, what, what, did, what did he tell him? He's gonna tell him, God saved you, God redeemed you uh, from Egyptian bondage. And he wanted you to obey him, but you, my people, constantly walked away from him and challenged him. Don't do that. So that whole song of Moses the leader, right before he dies, uh, when you keep on reading uh, Deuteronomy, he says, let me give you a song that's gonna call you as you sing it to remember the Exodus and how you complained against God in the wilderness and constantly backed up from him when he just wanted to woo you to him. And, and will you follow him? Will you follow him? So that psalm was written uh, to, to call the people uh, to be faithful to God and not rebel against him. Ever rebel against God? 
as a child. I've done it. Ever tell God, uh, I think I need you to leave me alone for a while. Been there, done that as a Christian. You know, we'll talk about more of that later. But I think he's talking about um, the Feast of Tabernacles because according to Deuteronomy, um, the book of Deuteronomy, 31 verse uh, 9 to 13, they read the law, Deuteronomy, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Every sabbatical cycle, every seventh year, they read the entire book of Deuteronomy for church. Imagine. So based on those three reasons, um, I think that the Feast of Tabernacles is here. What is the Feast of Tabernacles about? God has saved me. What does he want from me? To worship him and to get the word from him, which means I want you to obey me. And if you think back when God saved you and what he saved you from, uh, if you're a Christian today, what does he want from you? Worship him above all things and follow him. Obey him. We're going to look at those two concepts. So let's look first what is what I would call the truth about worship. What is the truth about worship? Um, very positive. Notice what he says here about worship. He, uh, and these are all, all the verbs here are imperatives in the Hebrew text, which means they are not a suggestion. What does he say you should do? First one. Uh, it's sing for joy. Sing for joy. Uh, to who? This guy's asking me questions. What am I supposed to do? Uh, talk. Uh, sing for joy to God. Who is he? Well, he's my strength. Uh, what else am I supposed to do? Shout joyfully to the Lord. I mean, God, gotta be quiet. Keep it down. No, shout joyfully to the Lord, God of Jacob. Uh, mm, raise a song. Uh, what, what do I use when I raise a song? Well, if you got a tambourine, use it. How hard is it to play a tambourine? Well, I took 15 years of lessons on tambourine. Really? Really? Yeah. Anyone can play a tambourine, right? Just shake the thing. They were big when I was a kid in the 60s. Every hippie had a tambourine, I think. Um, it's uh, uh, the sweet sounding lyre, you know, like a little harp thing. You got one of those? Wait a minute, go back to that. I wasn't done with that text. I think God just moved me along. I need to go backwards. Please. <laughs> Verse, yeah, that one. Um, the lyre and the harp. So uh, when you think about uh, the, oh, I meant, I reversed them. The, the, the lyre and the harp. So the, the lyre, uh, the Hebrew word is like a, a bottle that you play as a musical instrument. My family's from South Carolina. Just saying. This speaks to me. When I translated that this week, I'm like, oh, I got the bottle thing. Like, if you can't play something, you can play a bottle. Haven't you seen, like, bluegrass people doing music? I grew up this way. And, you know, well, we don't have a bass player, you know. Hey, Larry, you play a bottle? Yeah. What do you do with the bottle? You know, it's the bass. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you all from the north or the west coast or something? Okay. Anyway, sitting there staring at me like, what is he talking about? So he says, uh, you know, use whatever is at your disposal, right? Okay, now we can go to verse three. Blow the trumpet. If you play that, that's the shofar. Now, I will tell you, my tour group bought this for me last February when we were in Israel. On the last day, they gave it to me. Uh, I have a packed suitcase, strategically packed for my whole tour. They gave this to me. I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to get that in the suitcase? And I don't want this thing to break. So I, it, was a, it was a miracle. I got this back to the States. But when they gave this wonderful gift to me, uh, of course, it's a shofar horn. You use it to call Israel to worship or you use it to call Israel a battle. So they wanted me to play it on the bus. Bad idea. No one would go to battle and no one would go to worship if Marty was playing the shofar. Okay, I'm just saying. But he says, hey, if you can play a shofar, play, play away, Right? Right? Uh, and he says, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. Which feast day? Tabernacles. What's it about? 
We're on our earthly pilgrimage. We're out in the wilderness. Boy, are we. And as I, until I get to Canaan land, heaven, what's it going to be in my Christian walk? Total obedience? Or am I going to drift occasionally? So let's think about this. Uh, he's telling you how to, how to worship. So raise a joyful shout to God. He said a joyful what? <laughs> shout. Shout. Now, I know the Pentecostals here and the Charismatics are loving this. Like, praise God, something's going to happen today amazing. This heady, cerebral church that I personally don't understand. I mean, what in the, is the deal with that? Reserved, etc. What did he just say? Did you read it? Raise a shout. Now, think about this. Think about the military. They all have their war cries, do they not? Now, you're getting all quiet on me. Like, oh, we don't have one. I mean, definitely don't do it in church, you know? Okay, so the army has one. What's it sound like? Oh, okay. Different inflection. I think it's a Hebrew word, but who, ah, uh, something like that. Uh, what, I don't know what that means. Uh, does the Air Force have one? Air power. That's it? One Air Force guy. Praise God for you. Okay. Uh, hmm. Marines, they have one? Hoorah. It's a different inflection of the Hebrew word, hoorah. I don't know what it means, but okay, they got their own. Mm, Coast Guard? They're out at sea right now. Uh, <laughs> Navy, they got one? Hooyah. All these Hebrew scholars in the military, it's totally amazing. I don't know what those words mean, but you got your work right, right? And when you get together with all your units and everything, this is what you do, right? Have I missed something? Yeah, that's what you do. Why? It gets you motivated. Now, I'm going to say something here. Do not freak out because I'm going to preface by saying my great-great-grandma and grandpa were both Choctaw Indians, okay? I'm just, so I've got nothing wrong with the statement I'm going to make, okay? So just bear in mind, those were my great-grandparents and my great-grandma, who I grew up with, was a Choctaw. So go figure, okay? So I read one time back in the 70s when I was younger, this, this statement, which is like, oh, that's true. The statement went like this. Why do, why do Christians show up at football games on Friday nights and scream like wild Indians. And then they come to church on Sunday mornings and they act like wooden Indians. Did you hear me? Now, if you have a problem with that, remember my heritage, right? What was it? I don't have a problem with the statement. It's the truth of the statement. Think about it. You go to a football game, your guy threads a pass into the end zone. Who looks at that and goes, that was beautiful. What do you do? Popcorn, everything's on. Who awesome? You're spiking the ball and you're not even catching it. You're all excited and everything. And you come to church, it's like, don't move. Don't say anything. Why is their hand up? I don't know. They got a question or something. I don't know. I mean, like that. Okay, just think about it. Moving on. It's too convicting. Uh, make a joyful shout to the Lord. You should be happy behind your mask. Okay? Uh, raise a song. Again, be loud. Don't be afraid to sing. Whatever your instrument is. Uh, but I'm an introvert. You know, I play an instrument. There's no way I could do it on, cha- on the stage. No way. It'd be too scary. I'm an introvert. I took 10 years of piano. I've played occasionally. Scared to death when I do it, but I do it. Use your gift. Uh, it says blow a trumpet. If you can play a shofar, play it. If you can't, like me, don't do it, okay? But do something. Now, what does a shofar sound like? I'm going to play this for you because you may not know. I want to play it for you. It's a, it's a clip. It puts the tills in you.
body, doesn't it? Why in the world do we play that? So you know exactly what he's talking about. If you can play that, play it. That's a call to worship. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul says that one day the Lord's going to send an angel to blow the trumpet and call his church home. Don't you know it's going to sound like that? I highly doubt you're going to go, hey, what's that? Because at that point, you're going to be lifting off the ground going, oh, yes, it's the shofar. So play the shofar. Be excited about it. And if you can't play an instrument, I mean, you can't play a piano, can't play a tambourine, it's too difficult. Harmonica, way past your abilities. Uh, I'm going to reach back into my southern past because I actually have my members who do this. This is a couple. The guy's on a guitar and the ladies, well, you'll see what instrument she's playing. Uh, and he's singing about, I'm a changed man because the angels have put my name in the book of life. And notice the instrument that she's playing. If you can... What do I do for God? Notice what she's doing. In fact, she has two instruments, one at her foot and then one in her hand. Notice this is going to take about a minute, to, so bear with me. She has a bell and spoons. He's going to sing about how he was changed by Jesus. You can do that. How is she doing that? We're getting to the words. Yep. Do you know you've been changed? The angels in heaven have signed my name. In what? The book of life. What instrument is she playing? Spoons. My family's from South Carolina. I mean, I remember as a kid, relatives, they can play spoons. I was mesmerized as a child. I tried it. Spoons went everywhere. But I'm just saying, if you, if you, like, what do I used to play, worship God with? Well, well, improvise. Well, I can't do spoons. You can do a bell. Didn't she have one? Ding. Etc. But the point is, worship God if you know him, because that just comes natural. That's the first part of the passage, is to worship him. Be excited about it. Be, be happy about it. You might even be noisy about it. That's the, the teaching about, about worship. But here's the teaching that he wants us to get in worship. Notice verse 5. He says, uh, let me stop and tell you. I was in this worship service talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, talking to people about how they should worship God. And God gave me, the worship leader, Asaph says, a word. See, when you come to church, you, two things should be happening. You worship God and you get a word from him. That's the way it, it should be happening. God wants you to do those two things. What's the teaching? Well, here's the teaching that he got. It relates back to the Israel in the wilderness and being delivered from Egypt. He says, he, God, established it, the Feast of Tabernacles, for a testimony in Joseph, code word for Israel, uh, when he went throughout the land of Egypt. Oh, when he delivered them. 
Really, the word throughout is not a good translation of the Hebrew word. The, the better translation is when he went against Egypt. Uh, he said, I heard a language at that time. I did not know. What does that mean? Well, they, they had been in bondage for how long? It's Bible trivia time. I'm going to try to move your puzzle piece around. 400 plus years, maybe 430 years. They've been bondage a long time. Uh, and when God finally showed up and talked to them, who did he speak to them through? Old man Moses in his 80s and his sidekick brother, Aaron. And he shows up and says, God's gonna free you. And he says, when we heard this message of freedom and redemption, of salvation, we didn't really kind of understand what God was talking about. Uh, uh, Stephen, before he is martyred in Acts chapter seven, verse 25, validates this point. He says the very thing, that when they heard, they didn't really process. Has it ever happened to you? You know, God shows up to do something amazing in your life. You show up to church. You maybe you've been away from church for a while. You have come back and God gives you a word and you're like, whoa, I don't even know how to process that. That's what he's talking about. He says in verses uh, six, seven, and 10, he says, I was, I, I uh, God says, I relieved his shoulder, Israel, of the burden, burden of what? Well, slavery. Uh, his hands were freed from the basket that carried all the, the bricks and everything that they had to haul around to make all of the buildings for Egypt. He says, you called in trouble and I rescued you. And I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you by the waters of Meribah. And that was on the other side of the uh, parting of the Red Sea. God said, you cried and I heard. So think about this. He said, you cried as my people in bondage and I listened to you and I delivered you. How long did they cry? More than 10 years? More than 100 years? More than 300 years, more than 400 years, yes. What does it tell you about God? Does he act quickly? The answer is not usually yes. Sometimes he takes them a while, but he does listen. So even though you don't think he's working, he's working. And he says, I hear you, but I'm setting up everything geopolitically and spiritually so that when I do deliver you, you know it's the perfect time and I did it. So he's talking about their redemption as a nation. He says, I showed up there and I delivered you. No one on the planet could deliver Israel from the iron fist of Egypt. Pharaoh had the greatest army at the time. God's gonna show up and deliver the people. Now I said last week, I'm gonna repeat myself uh, because he's talking again about delivering his people from Egyptian bondage. When God does this and frees them from Pharaoh's grip, he uses 10 plagues to do it. And when he uses those plagues one after the other, he's dismantling the pantheon of the Egyptians. Because those particular plagues tie in, most of them do, some of them are questionable, but most of them tie in with an Egyptian god of the pantheon. So the first plague on the Nile turning to, to blood, God is attacking the god who's the guardian of the Nile River. So to turn the Nile River, the mighty Nile, to blood, he just took this major power of their pantheon and just said, God said, I'm the god over that god, false god. When you get to plague number five, uh, where God plagued the cattle, uh, that's the god Hathor, or the mother, mother goddess, uh, in the form of a cow. So when he strikes the cattle, God says, I'm, I'm more powerful than this, this false god. So God shows his people his power. Uh, down to the death of the firstborn, plague number 10, Pharaoh was the deity, the sun god, uh, and uh, he, he's supposed to be uh, also the giver of life, uh, but he can't even save his own son. So God says, I'm going to attack the head of your pantheon. I'm going to dismantle it to free you. Boy, he did it in a powerful way, didn't he? You would think if you saw all those 10 plagues happen, that you would totally trust God and follow him and never ask another question and never complain. Well, that's not what's going to happen. Verse 10, God says, I, the Lord, which the title of his name there, Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized. Uh, in fact, it's supposed to be capitalized. It's not lower O-R-D. Uh, this is Yahweh. 
uh, the covenant God. Uh, and I am your God, Elohim, the creator God. So he's the covenant God. He's the creator God. Uh, he said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Boy, did he. Ten plagues. Uh, and now, because of what I've done, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Because of what I've done in redeeming you, then you should be ready for me to then teach you truth. You know, think back when you got saved. Isn't that what you wanted? God saved you from whoever you used to be, whatever you used to be doing. He saved you. And boy, didn't you just want to open your mouth and just, just absorb every Bible study, every sermon, everything you could read. I mean, I did. That's what he's saying. So what did God want after he saved them? He wanted one thing. He wanted obedience. Remember, first four verses, worship me, worship me, and then follow me. Can a Christian choose not to follow God? Yeah. They can slip into carnality. The Corinthians did. Read chapter three, first Corinthians. Yeah, you have a will, but you're like an errant child. And so what does a father do? He tries to woo you back. This is what he's talking about here. He said, I, I, wanted, you to, I wanted you to follow me, but um, I showed you my power. I redeemed you. I mean, think about, about who you used to be before you were a Christian. Like, what would you, how would you fill in the blank? When you were in bondage in Egypt, in your spiritual captivity, before Jesus freed you by the power of the cross, I used to be a what? Atheist, agnostic. I was more concerned about being culturally woke than spiritually woke. I used to be a hedonist. I used to be a materialist. I used to be a party animal. I used to be a drunk. I used to be a, you know what I mean? Put your name in there. And then when he saves you, changes everything, doesn't it? He just freed you from Egyptian bondage. So what should you do? Well, love him above all things. This is what he says in verse eight. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel. If, notice it's conditional, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you, and nor shall there be any foreign God. So he's, he's telling him, I'm going to give you two commandments. Keep these, because if you keep these two, all the other eight will fall in place. I just want you to be obedient. He says, here, when you, do you have children? How many have children? Yeah, when you tell them, you better listen to me. Is that optional? Why are you getting so quiet? I'm trying to help you. Yeah. Is it optional? When you say, say something like, better hear me. What are you telling that child? Your life depends on your future college expenses, getting a vehicle, getting the license, getting your ears pierced, whatever. It all falls on this one. You better hear me. He's saying, I want obedience. He said, Israel, I, don't want to, I, I freed you with 10 plagues. I parted the Red Sea. I dried up the seabed. You got to the other side. It did all these amazing things. All I wanted was you to look at that and go, he's God, worship him, and obey him. What'd they do? Well, they get their backs up to the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. They're backed up there as slaves. They see the Egyptian chariots coming. No, your Brenner was not leading the chariots, but you know I'm just saying. Here they come. They're closing in. And you got nowhere to go, and it's over for you. And what did they do? Instead of saying, our God is so great, he just wiped out the Egyptian pantheon, what did they do? In verses 10 to 12 of Exodus 14, they complained. Who'd they complain to? The leader. Moses, what were you thinking as a strategist? I mean, Josephus said you used to be a general in the Egyptian army. This is as good as you were? I mean, there's no way out. They complained. Have you ever complained in your Christian walk? Oh, never. <laughs> did you complain coming to church today? It's so early, mom. No way, man. Yeah, did you complain coming to church? Yeah, it's so cold. God doesn't want us worshiping when it's 21. Yeah, he does. You know, they complain. So think about it. He parts the Red Sea. They get to the other side. Uh, it's amazing. They parts the Red Sea. And they get to the other side. They're three days walking, and they wind up at a place called Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. 
Interesting, because the water there was Mara. It was bitter. So what'd they do? They're in the desert, cloud by day is following them to shield them from the heat. They see the whirling pillar of fire of the glory of God. You think that'd get your attention to be obedient? What'd they do? They get to the water and God's parted water and they get to the water and they're like, this is terrible. I can't drink this. This is lousy. I want some. Again, did you, have you ever complained? They complain there. So what's Moses do? Now, I've been out in the Sinai before. It's not a place where you find trees. He finds a tree based on God's prescription, throws the tree into the water, and the water turns, the, the tree turns the brackish water into primo water. You would think that's like, okay, I've seen 10 plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He just turned those waters with a tree, like an acacia tree, to, to the best water I've ever drank. You would think that you would go, I am totally obedient till I die. Really? Now, because if you keep reading in Exodus 16, two months later, two months later, they get, to a, they get to a point where we want some meat and we need some bread. Oh, the meat was so good in Egypt, even though we were slaves, the meat was good and the bread was wonderful. Could we have some of that? They begin to do what again? Complain again. After total deliverance, they're complaining again. What does God want? First four verses, worship me. What is he telling you in the last verses? Follow me. Obey me. What'd they do? Well, they complained. Uh, I think we have a word for that. It's called ingrates. Wow, who could do that? You would think, you're sitting in your chair thinking, I would have never done that. Really? Put you on the desert, in the sand, walking every day. You got no change of clothes. This is it. (laughs) Where are you going? You don't see a giant. You don't see a Starbucks. There's nothing out there. You'd complain. Verse 11, sad truth. What does he say? But my people, oh, well, they did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. I, and I wanted them to, but, but they didn't do it. They didn't listen. That's, that's how they responded. So notice what he says in verse 12. He says, that, well, if you don't want to respond to me in a positive, obedient fashion, and you keep doing that over and over again, because I've done it in my Christian walk before. Trust me, my Christian walk has not been a straight line to glory. Has yours? If you're sitting there going, oh yeah, I never deviate. Maybe I'll switch and talk about lying next Sunday because my Christian walk has been up and down as I'm heading to glory, but I want to be more obedient one day than the next day. That's the goal. But if you are perpetually stubborn to God, well, notice what he says in verse 12. This is ominous. What God do? Oh, I was patient with them again, you know? No. He says, I gave them over to their stubbornness over their heart to walk in their own devices. Ooh. You never want God to look at your life and go, oh, really? You want to continually do that again? Really? And you're doing it a 30th time? Really? Now, God says, if you want to continually do that, sin, I will turn you over to it as your father. And perhaps when you get down to the depths of that sin, you'll wake up. Have you ever been there as as a Christian walking with God? When things did not go your way, well, he took away my job. Or he, he, somebody in my life I loved uh, uh, moved, or he took him to heaven, or, or things are not going well in my relationship. I'm go pick it. Things have happened to you, and you get angry at God, and so you start pulling away, and you do it willfully. And he says, if you want to stubbornly walk away and not worship me, he says, I will try to get your attention by turning you over to whatever it is that you're enamored with. Don't ever go there. I've done it. Not a pleasant place to be. Does God operate like this? Yeah, yes. Uh, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 through 13 says he does. And I'll just submit it to you to read, not take the time to do it. It tells you he does that. 
because he loves you. What do you do with a child that's errant? Same thing. You want to get their attention, so you might let them experience something so that they learn not to do that. I mean, I learned some of my bigger lessons in life because as I grew up and made terrible decisions as a Christian, my parents watched it happen after they counseled me not to, and then they came along later to say, okay, what well, sudden what did you learn from that? Oh, well, to listen to you, that type of thing. Verse 14, he said, if you would obey me and follow me and come back to me, notice what he says I'll do. He says, I will quickly subdue your enemies and turn your, my hand against your adversaries. If you will turn to me and walk with me intimately because of all the evidence I've given you to do that, I will quickly, not only, I won't wait 400 years, I will come in and I will bless your life immensely. You might look at your life right now and go, my life is total adversity. And that adversity might be related to what? You are stubborn spiritually and God's trying to get your attention and saying, would you come back to me? Because if you come back to me, I'm gonna bless you greatly. That's what that verse says. Verse 15, this is the other side of the equation. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him and their time and punishment would be forever. He said, if you, if you want to pretend like you're obeying me, I totally got your number. Because you know, if your child is not really obeying you, you just look at their face. Did you hit your sister? Uh-uh, uh-uh. You know, my sister, Marla, who went on to be with the Lord when she was 61, a couple of years ago, um, when we would sit at the dinner table, she sat to the right of me. And so she was, you know, my dad's favorite, the oldest, could do no wrong. And then there was me. And I was always getting in trouble. And so she would, she would take her fork. She was right-handed. I was left-handed. And she would thrust it under her arm and stab me in the rib cage. <laughs> and and ugh, it would just knock the air out of me. And so she'd done that me. And my dad sat to my left, okay? Usually in his U.S. Customs uniform with the gun belt thing, you know, took off for dinner. And so he's sitting there looking very ominous. So she'd stab me. So I, I'd had that happen to me several times. So I finally just hit her. Not a good option in my life. My, I met Moses that day in the form of my father. Um, you know, but I had told my parents for years that she had stabbed me during dinner. My parents were like, Marla would never do that. She's so sweet. Right. You know, it wasn't until we were, I must have been in my 40s. She came to visit us one time and she came clean. My dad's like, no way. Like, dad, I was trying to tell you. Anyway. This is me confessing my hurts and pains. See, it's a spiritual thing, isn't it? I mean, you come clean. I mean, yes. Um, says those who pretend obedience, that was my sister. I mean, come on. If you're pretending obedience, I mean, that, that doesn't work before God. What does God want to do for you? Verse 16, I close with this. What's he want? What's verse 16 say? Notice the adversative. Well, you're doing that, but I would rather do what with you? I would rather feed you with what? Finest wheat, the best honey, from a rock. I mean, I'd like to do something miraculous. If you got honey coming out of a rock, wouldn't you say that's miraculous? God says, I want to do something amazing in your life, but you've got to come back to me. Because Feast of Tabernacles is all about not drifting, but staying close to Jesus. So if you've drifted today, what is Jesus telling you? What's the word? Just come back. This might be you. That might be you. Does the boat have an engine? The answer is no. Uh, does it have oars? Man, I can't see any. So it's in the currents of the ocean. Where's it going? Wherever it goes. This might be you, spiritually speaking, for whatever reasons. You're angry at God, upset at God, whatever uh, temptations you've given into. And so this might be a, a, a metaphor of your life. You're just drifting and you know you're drifting. And what's the psalm telling you? He wants you to come back. Remember 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive you of how much of them? All of them. And cleanse you. He's, he wants to cleanse you. And if you don't know Jesus, well, you're adrift with no hope. And he wants you to accept him so he can be the pilot of your little boat and save you and redeem you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the clear teaching of the scriptures. There's a shallow end. Uh, there's a, a deep end. And we thank you for the fact this passage has both of those things. And we as your saints, we pray that we might be not complainers, uh, but ones who follow hard after you. Forgive us if we haven't. May we confess that and, and get back close with you. And for those who don't know you, show them uh, the power of the deliverer, Jesus, who can save them and redeem them and change their whole life course action. In Jesus' name, amen.